Would you please join me in a word of prayer? Lord, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the acceptance you give us in Christ. Lord, I pray for each one of us now that you'd open our hearts to hear your truth, and I pray that you would help me as I preach it. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So today we begin a little four-week sermon series on the topic of worship, and we will be looking at four of the Psalms from the book of Psalms, and I've picked this sermon series uh, for a couple of reasons. One is we have four weeks, including this Sunday, until Advent starts, and that's when the Christian calendar starts over, Um, and two, the Advent 1 is December 1st is the first Sunday of Advent, and we're starting into the new prayer book that our province has put together. So we're kind of thinking about what is worship, why do we worship the way that we do. Uh, There'll be a Sunday school class for three weeks starting next week on that. And I'm titling this liturgy, which is a word that means the work of the people. It literally means that. It also means the work on behalf of the people. And it explains what we're doing when we gather. The Anglican way is picking up practices that church, um, churches have done for 2,000 years. And the work of the people is helpful. It's not um, in any way arbitrary. The whole order of our service, the way the prayer book is fashioned, it's doing some important things. One of the things that's really important that it's doing is it's changing our narrative. Every one of us has a story, a narrative that sets meaning for their life. We subscribe to a number of stories or narratives. Unfortunately, some of those narratives are wrong. And by coming to church and going through the liturgy, we are writing the correct narrative over our lives. It is shaping us. It is healing us. It's changing the story, the big story that our small stories are a part of. Let me give you an example of a common narrative that is wrong that many people hear and we believe. Something is only wrong if you get caught. You've heard that. Or maybe you've heard it kind of like this. No one will know. No one needs to know. I am convinced that we are in a universe that has more than just humans and God in it. There are angels, there are demons. And while demons cannot read your mind, they can give you thoughts. The scripture is full of examples of it. And one of the thoughts that comes to people's mind quite a bit is no one will know. Have you ever heard that in your head and thought, weird thought? And it may or may not have been generated by you, but it's a false narrative. It's not actually true because at least two people know. You know, and God knows. And so it's not true. No one will know. Immediately, there are a couple of people that know and maybe some others. And the funny thing about the human, the way we're put together, is that our conscience unless we do something to alter it, our conscience is on God's side. And so it stands for the truth and it will accuse us. Our conscience knows. Whatever the thing is, if we try to hide that sin or hold it back and believe the lie, our conscience will say, ah, I know, you know, God knows. And so what I'd like to suggest this morning, my main point is that God in his nature makes confession desirable. It's actually desirable for us to confess our sins to God. And the liturgy is full, every Sunday is full of specific confessions. The opening colic for purity. Almighty God to you, all hearts are open, all desires known. From you, no secrets are hid. Right there is a, is a form of acknowledgement that, God, you see my heart. So let's just be honest about it. I'm going to bring it to you. And I'm asking for your Holy Spirit to come. 
We say, Lord, have mercy at points. We say, um, forgive us our trespasses. And we, of course, on Sundays that are not Baptism Sunday, the liturgy is a little different today, we have a general confession. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned. These are all part of the liturgy, and it's important. It's a blessing to us to be able to confess our sins. Now, I want to show you something from the scriptures, from Psalm 32. That's my preaching text today. And it was written by King David or written in the spirit of King David. It's a Psalm of David. If you want to turn to Psalm 32 in your um, pew Bible, I'm going to look at a couple of things in there. And I'm going to begin with verse 3. Something that happened to King David caused him to learn an important thing about the lack of confession. I don't know specifically what sin he's referring to, but I'll remind you of his infamous one. You all know, or most of you know, the story of David and Bathsheba. David stayed home when he should have been off at war, and he was bored, and he saw a beautiful woman bathing, and he coveted her, and so he took her, and when she got pregnant, he tried to cover that sin up by having her husband murdered. So adultery and murder. And there was a period in David's life from when he committed those sins to when he actually repented of them and confessed them to the Lord. And he's describing the experience that he must have felt in verse 3. Psalm 32, verse 3 says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. We are a, a whole as a person. Our heart, our spirit, our body, our mind, our emotions, we are meant to be a whole. And if you have something going on on one part of you, it affects the other parts. Unless you are some way disintegrated, you are an integrated whole. And so David had a sin, and he was believing the lie no one will find out. And he said, while I kept silent, my bones wasted away. His physical body was feeling the effects of his spiritual condition. I'm reading a book now, right now on, on healing prayer. And the psychologist and Christian that, that wrote the book did an experiment on prayer. It was like one of those um, scientific approaches where they had three groups, a control group, and they did all these types of prayer and studied the effects of it. And he came to the conclusion that somewhere, in his words, somewhere upward of 70% of all physical ailment actually has a spiritual cause. It's not just physical. That there's something spiritual going on. David had unconfessed sin in his life, and he said, my bones waste away. His physical body was feeling this effect, and it was, and it was so hard on him. Our bodies will respond in both positive or negative ways. Think about the topic of forgiveness. We know that if we hold unforgiveness against somebody else, it will actually start to affect us. Our blood pressure, uh, risk of stroke, uh, body shape, all sorts of things start to happen if we hold in the, the bitter root of unforgiveness. Also, needing forgiveness from God, which is what David's talking about, will have physical effects on us. Think about um, the famous story of Edgar Allan Poe. You know of Edgar Allan Poe, he has these kind of dark stories. His mind thinks in a dark way. One of his most famous short stories is called The Telltale Heart. And it was about a man who's the narrator who has, he, he just gets something against his elderly neighbor. And he says he had an eye, something about his eye, either the look in his face or there was something physically weird about his, his eye. And, and he murders him and hides, hides the evidence in the body under the floorboards of the house. 
But he's so confident that he executed this crime in a clean way that no one could find out that when the investigators come, he circles up a chair, a circle of chairs on the very floorboards over which he's hidden the evidence. And they're interviewing him and he's totally being calm about it until the telltale heart starts to speak. And he starts to hear this heart beating. They're talking, they're interviewing him, and it just keeps getting louder and, until he thinks everybody must be able to hear this, but nobody else seems to hear it, just him. The way Poe tells it, it sounds like maybe it's the dead man's heart, but more than likely, it's his own physical heart. He's got an unconfessed sin that he's trying to hide, and his own heart is betraying him. And it's just starting to beat louder and louder until he can't bear it anymore, and then he confesses to it. And of course, they tear up the floorboards and find the evidence. But in confession, he experienced a kind of relief, a release from that internal turmoil. David talks about this in verse 5. Look at the psalm, verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, he's speaking to the Lord, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The Lord is so quick to forgive when we confess. And one of the lies, another lie, another false narrative out there is that God's just waiting to smite you. He just wants to wipe you out. You can't trust him. He's not good. If you come to him and admit this, he'll get you. No, that's not what the scriptures show. The scriptures show that when we come to him, he responds in forgiveness. He welcomes us to bring our sinfulness to him so he can heal us. He speaks ill of when we hold it back. He has harsh words for us. Think about this, parents. Um, I'm a parent as well. If your kid disobeys you and does something rebellious, but then comes to you and lies to cover it up, which is more offensive to you? In every case, it's the lie. It's the bold lie to your face. You would rather have your kid come and say, Dad, I, I disobeyed your rule and I, I, I went against your thing. And, and they tell you that than if they come and lie straight to your face. All of a sudden, for me at least as a parent, the lie is the bigger thing than the, whatever the disobedience was before. In many ways, God says the same. Think about Jesus' harsh words and they were appropriately harsh. He had some harsh words for people who claimed to not need forgiveness, to not need to confess. It was, the, it was the so-called righteous ones, the Pharisees, that were claiming to have spiritual eyesight. And they said, what, are we blind too? And he said, well, if you acknowledge that you were blind, you could actually be healed, and then you'd have spiritual sight. But because you claim that you can see, that you have spiritual righteousness, you're still blind. And it was the sinners, the so-called sinners, and the prostitutes and the tax collectors that were coming to Jesus, and he was welcoming them and forgiving them, and they were experiencing incredible joy. It was the religious types that didn't want to acknowledge their need to confess their sin. They didn't want to have to say, I'm a sinner, and I need your forgiveness, God. They couldn't get to that place. And so they built up a whole system of religion to try and make themselves look good, and Jesus just spoke very directly into it and said, you're hypocrites. You're whitewashed tombs. You're clean on the outside and you're decrepit on the inside. The invitation is to come. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us. But if we don't, what happens? We're holding on to that stuff and our bones start to waste away. Our physical body will have effects and other things will go poorly in our lives. The invitation that Jesus has to his kingdom starts with his very first sermon, Mark chapter 1. When he went public, he said, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's, it's at hand. Repent and believe the good news. 
That was his first sermon. That was his first, it was invitation to the kingdom is you come in through repentance and then you experience the kingdom of God. Repent and believe the good news. This psalm describes this as a blessed state. Look at the first verse. It says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. You're actually blessed when you have a sin and you confessed it and God forgives it. That's a blessed state to be in. It's so important that the Apostle Paul, when he wrote his great theological treatise, the letter to the Romans in chapter four, quotes that verse. And he ties it to Abraham's believing God's promises. And he says, Abraham wasn't righteous and therefore God accepted him. He believed the promise God had and God credited it to him as righteousness. So what he's saying is he's setting up that if we believe that God has forgiven us in Christ, that's the promise, then we're forgiven, we're made righteous, Christ takes our sin on the cross, and in place he gives us his righteousness. It's the great exchange. It's the good news of the gospel. I don't know how I didn't see it for the first 17 years of my life, even though I was around Christianity. I was like, I just couldn't get that. And I pray for each one of you that you'll see this great offer that's out there. God is saying, come to me with your sin, confess it, repent of it, let me heal you, and my forgiveness is yours, and my righteousness is yours. But what we do, what many of us do, is we try and find some other way than having to to basically get on our knees before God and beg him for forgiveness. We try and find some other way to fix our problem. And the result? Bones that are wasting away. It doesn't work. But blessed is the one whose sins are covered by Christ. Here's another false narrative that's out there. God is not fun. He's a spoil sport. He's made all his laws to ruin your good time. Have you heard that? I mean, Billy Billy Joel sings about it in his song, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. I took a a group of brothers. There was two high school kids and um, I think the older brother, James, was 20, on a mission trip uh, down to the border town of Reynosa in Mexico. And James was not a Christian. His brothers were, they were kind of coming to youth group and they were starting to hear this message and they were starting to change. In time, all three of them gave their life to Christ and became Christians. James went on this trip um, and was helping us build this house and do, you know, soccer games with the children of the, the little village. And he came back and he said, I had no idea how much fun Christians can be. James just thought getting drunk or high or partying is where fun was. But you know what David says in this Psalm in in verse 10, he says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. How many people do you know that are out there doing all that other stuff that are actually satisfied? Oh, I don't deny it can be fun for a little while, but many are the sorrows of the wicked. It doesn't end in peace. But look at what happens for those who are Christians. It it, it goes on. It says, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright of heart. There's gladness and there's joy that comes from actually repenting of our sins, asking God to forgive us, and then walking with him. I know this. The need to confess comes daily. And by every week coming here, we search our hearts, we invite the Lord in. For me, I long above all things to have a clean slate with the Lord. If there's something in my life I've not confessed to him and I know about it, I feel distant from God. I don't want to pray. I feel like I'm hiding. And when I bring that to him and ask him to heal me, the relationship becomes more intimate. I can hear him again. I can feel his presence. 
When I was silent, my bones wasted away. My relationship with him withered. I felt like I was dried up in the the hot summer heat, just like he describes. What makes confession so desirable is the fact that God is so good. He's not a spoil sport. He gives you his rules because he knows when you live by them, you actually will have a good life. You'll have joy. What a blessing it is to come as a broken sinner and experience God's forgiveness and then his healing presence. He does make me righteous. He is transforming me. He's giving my heart desire for his goodness. And this morning we come to the baptism font and celebrate it. I mean, we're renouncing our sinfulness and the wickedness of the world and Satan, but we're turning to Christ. We're being washed in the the waters of the baptism font. And it's a reminder of the good news of the gospel, that God makes confession desirable. He's quick to forgive us. This is the best deal that's going. I want to invite you to consider a regular pattern of being honest before God. And I don't mean just saying the liturgy. I mean actually talking to him about what's going on. Why is it that you want the wrong thing sometimes? Invite God into that struggle because he already knows it and he loves you. And so keep a short account with him. Regularly come, talk to him about it, confess quickly. And the more you do it, the better you get at it and the more you actually enjoy it. And you have this joy, this rejoicing that Christians have. Not because we're perfect, but because we're forgiven. Thanks be to God for making that possible in Christ, that we can be forgiven and have that relationship with him. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the good news of the gospel. I pray for each person in this room that your truth would overturn those false narratives. That, Lord, we would see that you actually love us, that you want us to come to you in our brokenness so you can heal us that there is joy and goodness and wholeness and blessedness and confession and forgiveness. Lord, I pray for all those who now come to the font to be baptized, that we would all experience the joy of salvation. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.